Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Thank you for joining us again at the latest FDF Issues Update webinar. Uh, we are joined, as always, by colleagues from across the FDF, uh, covering a range of different issues to provide their expertise and update you on the latest comings and goings that will be of interest to you. Today's webinar is a very timely occasion, uh, as there's a, a matter of great interest to members that we've been working on for the last few months that's come into play today with the uh, uh, imposition of the new EU composite product requirement, import uh, import requirements around export health certificates and private attestations. Uh, and we have Natalie and Luke from the team will be providing a more in-depth focus than we usually provide on this issue uh, and are here to answer your questions on what exactly is required and what's changed when you move your goods into the EU and into Northern Ireland. Hello everyone, so I'll be updating you on some changes to the EU animal health regulations. As part of these changes, there's a change to um, how composite products will be exported to the EU, which comes into force today. I'll provide some information on this, on the new processes and some resources as well. So a composite product contains both plant and processed products of animal origin, for example, milk and eggs. And just to flag the scope of the regulation, the scope applies to the CN codes listed in Article 1.6 of Regulation 2021.573. This has recently um, replaced Article 12 of Regulation 2019.625. So many products will now require official controls at EU border control posts that prior to today were exempt. Even products exempted from official controls at the border will still need to complete attestations and products affected include uh, confectionery, chocolate, biscuits and cakes. Uh, so from today, there are changes to non-shelf-stable composite products, shelf-stable composite products that contain meat products and shelf-stable composite products that do not contain meat products. Those that do not contain meat are what, what I'll focus on today and can be split into two further categories to determine the certification and border requirements, which I'll explain in further detail. If dairy or egg is an ingredient in the product, even in very small quantities, then they need to undergo a specific heat treatment. Otherwise, the product will require an export health certificate and an EHC. And whilst pasteurization is not included as a specific heat treatment, the Commission has recognised that this was an error and last Friday published a statement regarding the application of the new requirements. The statement confirms that the Commission will amend the regulation to allow the entry of pasteurization as a suitable heat treatment. So in terms of the practicalities of complying, as just mentioned, shelf-stable composite products that do not contain meat products will require a private attestation signed by the EU importer. This will be checked at the border control posts, BCPs, unless they are exempt. The Commission has now published the list of composite products exempted from official controls at BCPs, the list was circulated publicly last Friday, the 16th of April, as an annex to Commission Delegated Regulation EU 2021-630. It sets out composite products in accordance with the CN code that do not require, sorry, do not need to be submitted for official controls at BCPs. The exemptions apply to the shelf-stable composite products that do not contain meat products and where the dairy is suitably heat-treated. They also need to be identified as intended for human consumption and must be securely packaged or sealed. 
Just to flag also that the Commission confirmed to us in a meeting with Food Drink Europe last week that the attestation needs to be completed in the destination country's language. The exemptions will no longer be based on the quantities of processed products of animal origin. An attestation signed by the importer into the EU will still be required for exempted products. For the exempted products, the competent authorities will perform official controls at any of the following places within the customs territory of the Union. The place of destination, the point of release for free circulation in the Union, and the warehouses or the premises of the operator responsible for the consignment. In terms of implementation, we've cited a letter that was sent on Friday, 16th of April, to the Chief Veterinary Officers of all Member States and all permanent representations, which includes a request to apply flexibility and a risk-based approach to consignments of composite products. We just want to flag also that it's really important to have a dialogue with importers, importers and BCPs on what they will require, as we've seen varying approaches from member states. And here are some resources with some further information. The European Commission has a webpage for importing composite products that includes a summary of the requirements, including legal references, a summary table of the transition measures on certification requirements, a decision tree for composite products, and a compilation of questions and answers to help answer the questions that are arising. This will be updated as necessary and was last updated on the 19th. The Commission's webpage also has a link to the list of composite products exempted from official controls at border control posts. There's also the link to the statement that I mentioned earlier that these are a transitional solution to the potential trade disruptions that the new requirements could cause, including allowing the entry of pasteurization as a suitable heat treatment and that composite products containing dairy products from the United Kingdom, GB, can be imported into the EU. DEFRA has also published a guidance document, an FAQ, an updated decision tree, and also there's a model attestation form, and for those products that still require an EHC, the new certificate and the accompanying notes for guidance are now available from DEFRA. Just to point out also, that the FDF website has a dedicated page on composite products and we're keeping this up to date every day with the latest information as well as links to all of the above resources that I've just mentioned. And uh, finally, some unanswered uh, questions that we're waiting for further clarity on. There's a question around honey, as it's our understanding that honey has to come from approved establishments and would have an approval number. However, there's no specific requirements for honey in the annex mentioned on the attestation form. There's some questions around the percentage declarations of the ingredients list on attestations, such as whether ingredients can be grouped into subclasses, as member states have very, taken various approaches. There's a number of points on the attestation form that require further clarity, and the Commission did confirm that they would update the attestation form. So keep an eye out for updates uh, from FDF and EFRA. And similarly, as mentioned earlier, keep talking to us and um, importers and BCPs on these expectations because these may vary by country. There's also a question around what the food business operator does with the document on traces, but we've actually just received some information on this. So my colleague Luke will cover these in a minute. Zephyr did up, um, publish an updated FAQ yesterday, which has been circulated to members and will be available on our website as well. Questions can be directed to DEFRA at traders at defra.gov.uk. And if you're experiencing any issues exporting composite products, please email our dedicated inbox, brexit at fdf.org.uk to ensure you receive a, quick, a swift response. And that's my update. I'll now hand over to Luke 
to continue on com composite products from a trade perspective. Thanks, Natalie. Yep, it's Luke here. So uh, essentially what I'm going to do in the next few slides is just talk about what these changes mean at the border uh, and what the paperwork and checks mean uh, for these products. So I think just to kick off, as some, uh, Natalie previously explained, now what these changes do uh, for the biggest change to the border is essentially remove um, a, a derogation that was in place previously for composites without meat. Uh, where if you didn't have more than 50% uh, POA in that product, you could be exempt from official controls, and that, and that covered pretty much all of those in that group. Uh, now, what they are is, uh, so composites with meat uh, in them, as they did previously, need an EHC, an export health certificate. That needs to be signed by a vet. Uh, it needs to be uploaded by traces. You need to complete the CHED in traces to do the pre-notification, and it faces documentary and ID checks at the point of entry, and it may be selected for a physical check. Now, for the non-shelf-stable composites uh, without meat and a non-shelf-stable composite is anything that's forced to move under temperature-controlled uh, requirements in the container or the lorry. Um, these now need um, EHCs, regardless of the content uh, or the makeup or the percentage of the products of animal origin in those products. So they now need an export health certificate that needs to be signed by a vet, uh, uploaded by traces, do your pre-notification, go for checks at the border, control posts, and it may be selected for a physical check too. The third category introduces a new form of paperwork that previously didn't exist. Now, this one's for shelf-stable composites, so they don't need any form of temperature control when they're moving or to be stored under temperature control. And what these products need is they need a private attestation um, when, when, to be placed onto the marketplace. And, these, and this third category is split into two categories. So there's the goods that are exempt from the controls at the border, and there are the goods that are not exempt from the controls of the border. So for the ones that are exempt from the controls of the border, the private attestation is only required at the placing of the marketplace. Uh, and now each um, BCP will interpret this differently, so it's worth always checking. And we'll run through an example around what one BCP in Northern Ireland is going to be doing on this one, just to give you an example, but it will differ. You'll also need to provide the importer with a declaration showing that it is exempt from controls at the border. Uh, this is just to provide the export, uh, the importer with the knowledge that it is. It shouldn't be required for the uh, actual BCP authorities there. But you're not required to enter via a BCP. Um, but some ports may want you to show this private attestation at the port. So I mean, conversations with members uh, around how some ports have handled uh, checks at the border is some some ports do want everything to be done at the border. So take Spain, for example. They typically uh, apply everything at the border. So, you know, they even check the labelling of the products at the border and things like that. Now, for the not-exempt um, uh, shelf-stable composites uh, from controls at the border, you need the private attestation to be ready at the point of entry. So it needs to be ready at the border control post that is required to enter. You also need to do the pre-notification on traces, complete the CHED when you're doing that pre-notification, and you also need to upload that uh, private attestation to the traces uh, when you're doing that traces notification. And it also needs to be to, uh, ready at hand for when the importer or whoever is responsible for moving that load through the border control post whilst the vet is, will be checking that one. Um, and there's been some questions around who will accept a copy or will they need an original? And I think it's very much down to the border control post. Uh, you will have to ask that one. So we've heard reports of uh, the Irish authorities saying they, that, that they will accept a copy, uh, whereas other authorities won't. So it's always worth checking with the BCP you are going to be moving that product through. And uh, what thought was worthwhile touching on how these uh, requirements will impact the Northern Ireland Protocol and the requirements under that, because as under the Northern Ireland Protocol, 
Um, Northern Ireland and anything going into Northern Ireland is required to go, undergo full third country rules, uh, as it were, entering the EU. Um, so for Northern Ireland, um, we've obviously got the grace periods as well. So what DEFRA have said for these changes, is if you're a GB authorised trader, so you're on that grace period list, you can use the Stanley document. Um, that's kind of a, a simplified bit of paperwork uh, allowed for those moving their goods into supermarkets into Northern Ireland. It's only for the retail destinations. You can't use it for any other sorts of non-hospitality, uh, non-retail settings. Now, if you're moving uh, a product into Northern Ireland and you're supplying uh, the hospitality, anything that wouldn't be covered by that grace period, you will have to follow these rules to the letter. So you'll have to go, if you need an EHC, uh, for your either your composites with meat or your non-shelf-stable composites, you'll need to the EHC. If you've got a shelf-stable composite, you'll need to have the private attestation moving into it. You won't be able to use that Stanley certificate because it's going to a non-retail setting. So I thought it would just be worthwhile touching around how these uh, movements will be treated into Northern Ireland, just to give you a flavour around how things may differ depending on what um, member state or Northern Ireland you're going to. Um, so for... GB to NI movements. If you're on the authorised trader list and you can comply with that um, retail uh, and it's going to retail, you can use your Stanley certificate. Um, that needs to be uploaded to traces and do the pre-notification, but you only need to have one Stanley per seal, uh, per load, and you can apply a commercial seal to that. It doesn't need to be an official seal, and, it un and you have to undergo the channelling procedure as you would have done if you were using the Stanley procedures prior to the 21st of April. Now, if you're a non-authorised trader, so say you're supplying into hospitality um, from uh, into Northern Ireland and your goods are exempt from the border control, so you're on the exempted list in that annex, um, the private attestation is required at the point of placing on the market. Uh, you'll need that declaration to provide the importer that is exempt from controls. Now, what DERA, the Northern Ireland equivalent to DEFRA, have said, they want that private attestation before the goods move. So it doesn't matter. So they're... De they're definition of placing it on the market is very much at the moment you start moving that good to Northern Ireland. So they want it before you move it. And that's even with the products that are exempt um, from the controls. And then they will use those, that, that notification you give them to that email address there to conduct the risk-based controls at the point of destination. So it's away from the border control post, but it's at the point of destination. Now for the non-exempt um, non the uh, composite products and those non-authorised traders, you'll have to go through the full process outlined uh, in the slide just before. So you'll have to do, you'll be required to have the private attestation at the point of entry. So either one of the BCPs in Northern Ireland, so Warren Point, Belfast or Larne, um, you'll be required to enter one via one of those BCPs. They're all BCPs. You'll have to give your pre-notification via traces, complete your CHED, upload that CHED with your private attestation. You'll have to have the, uh, the import or the person responsible for that load present at the BCP to walk the vet through that check and just in case it needs anything. And that check will take place at the point of entry, not destination. So it'll take place at the point of entry, which will be one of those free ports on that one. So that's just a flavour of how it's going to work at Northern Ireland. Now, it may differ um, depending on which other member state you go through. So it's always worth checking before you move the good. Do you know um, how the member state's going to uh, approach these checks because they are introduced a raft of new checks uh, that didn't uh, take place previously. Uh, so if anyone's got any questions around the border uh, requirements and then you can always contact me on my email address at luke.hindlaw at fdf.org.uk. 
uh, with any questions on that one. I will now be passing to Nikki Hunt, who's going to talk to you about COVID-19. Yes, very quick update on the government's roadmap review for um, easing lockdown restrictions, which I think we're all looking forward to. Um, as you know, there's a number of distinct areas that the government's looking at. They are looking at uh, social distancing and the FDF response is pending on that. There was an alert out to members last week calling for any submissions that you wish to make around that. And if you would like to send those in, I will need them by the end of the day uh, today. And the final deadline is for Friday. Um, the second element to this is the events research group. So this is an industry steering group, which is going to be working with national and local public health authorities. And they'll be looking at risks for events in different contexts to see what um, easing of some of the restrictions might look like. So they'll be looking at things like social distancing, self-certification, uh, test on entry protocols, that sort of thing. So we're still waiting for more of an update around that. The Global Travel Task Force, obviously, there is an ambition to try and reopen international travel for the 17th of May, but at this stage, that's by no means guaranteed. Obviously, the uh, operators in the holiday and airline and tourism sectors are very keen for that to, to get underway. But the government obviously has concerns about the presence of international variants and um, really sort of it likely to be quite up to the wire as to whether that does actually, um, the reopening does actually take place on the 17th. The COVID status certification review, we submitted an FDF response to that and it's likely that we'll hear more about that in the coming months. So as mentioned, if you've got any questions or um, points that you want to raise as part of the review around the social distancing proposal, then please pop those across to me at nikki, N-I-C-K-I dot hunt at fdf.org.uk. The only other thing to mention from a COVID perspective is we will be closing the COVID-19 inquiry box likely later this week or early next week. Um, some of the inquiries have actually dried up to a dribble, which is very good news because it does give an indication that we're starting to move out of this and most of you will have resolved some of the issues that you've been having. There will be a note on the inbox to redirect those inquiries so you can send those to individual mailboxes, either to myself or Caroline Kahane on all of the testing issues, um, or similarly for some of the business support, which is likely to be ongoing for some time, then please do direct that into one of us and we will get an answer for you. Um, so with that, I will now pass to Caroline to talk about testing. Okay, so we've got an, a short update on workforce testing today. Um, so from the last time we met, uh, I think the recent change is there is now a universal testing offer where everyone in England can access free lateral flow tests for themselves and for their families to use twice a week. And this offer is very much aimed at those individuals who don't have access to, to lateral flow tests via a workplace or a school bubble. So with that in mind, um, I think it's fair to say that businesses are still being encouraged to implement their own workforce testing, either on site or asking staff to, to collect tests and bring them home. Um, we know that this is the government's preferred option, it obviously ensures an element of supervision as to who is being tested and to also ensure that results are being reported properly. But also, you know, for businesses themselves, there's obviously benefits in knowing, you know, who within your staff is being tested regularly and, and enable you to kind of manage those risks, really. The deadline for registering lateral flow tests was, in fact, the 12th of April. So if you have already registered, you can now order tests to either use, as I said, in the workplace or encourage your employees to collect 
tests from you and then you know do administer the tests at home. If you haven't registered, you can no longer order free tests in England, but you can ask your employees to order um, their own test kits via the .gov.uk website. As I said, there's obviously this universal offer um, our, or an alternative is obviously to pay for them privately. We understand there's been a backlog of order forms and there's been some issues around delivery confirmations for tests. So if you are having any issues, then please do let us know. We can contact DEFRA, who have been liaising with the Department for Health on our behalf. Um, and as things stand, lateral flow tests will be funded until the end of June. But we are in discussion with government as to whether that will be extended further. And we are, you know, in fact, pushing for an extension because there's obviously no end date set for the universal offer. So I think, you know, we would want to see something similar for businesses. So we'll keep you updated as soon as we know more on that. And um, Kat Hay will provide an update on testing in Scotland in a moment. And I know that Pete Robertson will cover Wales. So if you do have any questions after um, today's webinar, then please email me at caroline.kihan at fdf.org.uk. And next, we've got Kat Hay with an update from Scotland. Um, I just want to give you two updates, one on the COVID-19 situation in Scotland and our easing of restrictions, and then a quick bit about um, what's going on in terms of Scottish elections. So um, on Friday there, travel throughout Scotland um, became legal, which was 10 days than earlier um, had been planned, which is great. Um, we can now move about Scotland freely, which is superb. Um, we are going to be returning to the Scottish level system on the 26th of April. Um, and just to flag there that what you can and cannot do in these various different levels has changed since we were previously in this level situation before Christmas. On the 26th of April, mainland Scotland and the islands, um, are, which are currently in level four, are going to move to level three and islands at level three will remain so until the 17th of May. 17th of May, all of Scotland will hopefully move into level two and then looking to move into level one in June and then in late June, hopefully moving to level zero and then a return to the tiers, if you remember those. Um, just on the um, timetable, you can access detail of what is permitted at each level on the Scottish Government website and that's gov.scot and follow the links to the COVID pages. On testing, as Caroline said, um, we have um, just had the announcement from Nicola Sturgeon yesterday that the lateral flow testing will be available to anyone in Scotland who requests them. They come in packs of seven and can be either posted out to a home address or collected from testing centres. That's all I wanted to say on COVID. Just quickly moving on to the election campaign. We've seen um, the majority of the parliamentary manifestos now launched, apart from Scottish Labour's, which is launching on Thursday. Um, the campaign is well underway. Um, I would say there's lots of copying and repetition in terms of policies and announcements coming out of the main parties. Um, I'm not a betting person, but you can expect to see broad cross-party support for a Good Food Nation bill, probably including the legal right to food, which is something that both Labour and SNP have mentioned previously. You can expect to see broad cross-party support for just transition to a low-carbon economy, um, a number of items around fair work and the circular economy. A couple of things to pick out there as well. The SNP want to create a single independent Scottish food agency. The detail of that we will be 
seeking to find out and report back to you in the coming months. Um, and the Conservatives who've committed to a delay of all non-COVID policies to 2023, which is great news, and that's something that FDF Scotland's campaign for in our own manifesto. Just on to the other parties there, um, we have the ALPA manifesto just launched today, um, and in that they ask the, for the creation of a second chamber for the Scottish Parliament, and say they'll create a national commission to help set up an independent Scotland if the referendum was to go ahead and grant that. Just very briefly before I hand over to Pete, um, looking at the polls, um, I just picked one from the Times that was out on Sunday there. We're looking at um, the SNP polling at 47% for the constituent vote, Conservatives around 23%, Labour close behind on 20% and the Lib Dems on 6 on the list or regional seats, the SNP are polling around 36% of the vote, Conservatives on 22%, Labour on 17%, Lib Dems on 6 And interestingly, this is where we think that the Green Party will pick up some seats, 9% of the vote, and the um, ALPA party on 6%. But it's all to play for, and we're keeping an eye on that. Um, I'll now hand over to Pete Robertson, who's going to give an update on Wales. Thanks, Kat. Um, just in three sections, really, from Wales. First of all, on COVID-19, uh, the testing has been mentioned, and yes, it's available for Wales for preferred is an, a hybrid model, i.e. a combination for businesses of testing on-site and at home, and that's available for all businesses more than 10 employees. You can get lateral uh, flow test kits at home since the 16th of April. And finally, hospitality looks is, is being confirmed yesterday that's going to be open from the 26th of April, which is obviously good news for outside only. In terms of EU exit, Welsh Grammarites have been challenging, uh, taking the U challenging the High Court to take the UK government to court. And just yesterday, uh, they were refused permission to challenge uh, the UK government over the Internal Market Act. And I'm sure we're going to hear more about that topic. In terms of the Senate elections, we've done our first things. The court recordings will be available. We had representatives from the four main parties. And it's interesting in, from the poll point of view that the situation's really changed as of poll just of yesterday. Um, effectively, it's as you were in a way that the the um, Labour stay on 29 seats where they are now, out of the 16 total. Uh, Lib Dems would have won. You would then have around 18 with the Conservatives, who are the big winners. And actually, the losers are the UKIP and uh, Plaid Cymru have lost a couple. Now, that's quite a change because previously we had potentially a big share for abolish assembly, but that seems to have disintegrated. In terms of the manifestos, the main manifestos have been launched. We're looking at things like uh, there's talk of a revamp for those who remember the late 80s, the WDA, they're looking at another economic development agency. Clearly, climate emergency funding and the whole climate change aspects are, are consistent across the manifestos. However, interestingly, you see the net zero targets where the Greens are at 2030, like Cymru at 2035, Lib Dems at 2045, and Labour and Conservatives at 2050. So clearly, there's a very different dynamic in terms of how quickly we need to translate. Uh, for those who are interested, there's a BBC Leaders debate on the 29th of April if you wanted to watch BBC Wales. And there's a policy guide, actually, that you can get access to. So it's still all to play for. Um, lots going on, and we wait to we wait to see the outcomes. Uh, if anyone wants any clarification or any further information, please drop me a line at pete.robertson at fdf.org.uk. Happy to help. So with that, I'm going to hand over to my colleague Anna Vernaniel, who will take us through FDF's uh, trade statistics for February. So last week, HMRC published trade data for the month of February, 
and we have analyzed the data for UK EU food and drink trade. Here is a preview of the trade snapshot, which we will be releasing at the end of the week on Friday, I think. And as you can see, UK food and drink exports to the EU have improved from the uh, month of January 2021, when they totaled the $256 million, down 75% for, from January 2020. But they're still 41% lower than the level reached in February 2020. In particular, exports to Ireland have dropped by more than two-thirds, and uh, exports of all of the UK stocked and products, except for whiskey, fell. Um, if we look at imports, we notice that they also recovered from January, but they remain 70% lower than the, the previous year. This indicates that UK businesses have started trading again, but that regulation, border checks and groupage issues continue to hamper trade and to act as a barrier for SMEs in particular. We can also see that uh, there has been an increase in trade with non-EU countries, in particular with Asia, which suggests that uh, a quicker easing of lockdown restrictions in that region allowed trade to go back to a pre-COVID growth path. So the bottom line is that we are going to see the impacts of both COVID and Brexit on trade figures for many more months to come and that uh, much more still needs to be done in order to make trade with the EU accessible again. Um, again, we are going to release in the full snapshots on Friday and next month we are going to be releasing our Q1 2021 export snapshots, so keep an eye on that. If you have any questions on this, please do not hesitate to email me at Anna.Vergnano at fdf.org.uk. And we now have you with an update on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Me again. Uh, so I'll just quickly talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol and some of the FDF work we've been doing on this one. So I think the first thing just to touch on is a, uh, a, a paper that FDF has drafted and shared with government on some of the solutions we think that will help unlock some of the GB Northern Ireland trade um, issues that a lot of our members and yourselves on this call have been facing. Um, so, you know, this paper can really be broken down into key two real key uh, proposals for government. I think the first is probably around the uh, creating some sort of monitoring system to ensure that, you know, both the UK and EU governments can make sure that products going from GB to Northern Ireland stays there and can provide the EU with that assurances that, you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol and some of the proposals under it aren't being used to um, pr provide a backdoor into the EU single market. Uh, the second is around this kind of um, using something that's already in place under the protocol. So the extension of that at risk and not at risk criteria and saying that, you know, this shouldn't just apply to tariffs, but it should also apply to simplifications on some of the paperwork, you know, the checks, the labelling uh, requirements in place that you are required to do if you're moving a GB to, uh, product into Northern Ireland. And just saying, you know, this, this not at risk criteria should just apply to tariffs, but it should also provide other simpler simplifications because, you know, as the title of it says these products aren't at risk of entering the EU. Um, and then, you know, so this paper also looks at some of the, you know, using the GB Northern Ireland trade as a test bed for some of the facilitations that could be applied to GB EU trades. It's talking about some looking at how we could uh, do a deal on SPS and do our own veterinary agreement that works for the purposes of GB Northern Ireland trade, but also GB to EU trade as well. Um, so we shared this paper with government and officials in, in the member states. It's been quite positively received and it's something that we'll be very much um, pushing on to kind of help 
create some of these solutions we need on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And then just on some of the intel that we're hearing from um, some of the EU-UK talks in the Joint Committee on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So there was a meeting um, last week in the Joint Committee between Lord Frost and Sefcovic, uh, which I think was being positively briefed out saying, you know, there was very constructive talks. Uh, the UK presented this roadmap to compliance to the EU. And uh, although there was some work to be done, it was uh, the start of a process to making sure both sides are happy with it. And we've also, as Dominic mentioned in the uh, introduction, we had a, a meeting with some of the ministers looking at this. And I think some of the view from the UK government really is that, you know, these talks really are quite difficult and painstaking. But, uh, you know, whilst they are constructive, I think, you know, it's going to be quite a tough process to get some of the solutions that we need. Um, I think, you know, it was being briefed out in some of the, the EU press, you know, RT and the like, that, you know, the EU is willing to take a more risk-based approach to some of this stuff, uh, making to kind of help provide the, the solutions we all need. Um, I think, you know, the UK ministers really do understand now that, you know, a lot of these processes are really quite cumbersome for the GB suppliers into Northern Ireland, that there is the real risk that, you know, a lot of GB companies just walk away because it's far too complicated and that has a real problem, for, you know, the, the consumer in Northern Ireland. Um, and I think, you know, they're looking at what they can do to make sure that, you know, we're not gold plating some of these requirements more than we need to do. Uh, if there are can, you know, you can take actions to make it simpler, they will do. So I think, uh, I think you know, the, the overall view is it's clear that, you know, we're probably not going to see any sorts of outcomes on this in the next few weeks, possibly months. But, you know, these talks are going on, they are painstaking, but I think, you know, both sides are really quite aware of the stakes and, you know, the risks of this not getting this right, um, as evidented. And then lastly, just as a regular reminder of how you can keep in touch or abreast of all of the trade issues, uh, you can sign up to our weekly trade update for members. Essentially, just brings together all the the, high, the, the, the topical highlights from the week um, into a single document so you're not getting bombarded by us. It goes out every, uh, it's either Thursday or Friday, uh, and you can sign up to that via our website. And we also have the uh, weekly trade drop-in on a Friday afternoon. It's every Friday at one o'clock till two o'clock and you can come in and just ask us any questions you want on any questions that are bothering you and we can do our best to answer them or take them away to get the answers you need. Uh, so that's it from me on the trade side. Uh, you can get in touch with me at luke.heinlaw at fdf.org.uk if you've got any questions. But I'll now be passing over to Emma Piercy on updates on Net Zero. Just a quick slide from me, uh, and this is to uh, highlight the webinar that you may already be aware of, and that's of our uh, Net Zero Ambition launch, which is taking place next Tuesday, 27th of April at 10am. So please do sign up if you haven't already. And uh, attending will also be Andrew Griffith MP, who will be giving a keynote, and he's um, the government-appointed Net Zero Business Champion. So really looking forward to, to hearing from him. Also, um, at the launch, we will be covering our project on uh, the roadmap to net zero, which will accompany the uh, ambition launch. The project is just at its um, sort of starting stages, but we can, uh, we'll be talking through uh, the, the various plans we have, the roadmap and, the, and its structure. Um, also, at the webinar, we'll be giving some feedback of following the net zero narrative project, which many of you would have been involved in in October and November last year through the surveys that were completed. And uh, this then uh, will also then lead to uh, the, the recommendations that came from that project and how we at FDF are going to be following up on those. This also touches upon then that the support specifically uh, for SMEs in regards to net zero. And again, many of you would have participated in a separate sort of set of surveys for um, specifically on SMEs, which um, with that, that hashtag, we have the SME net zero. Uh, and this was part of an initiative 
support, uh, led by uh, the Broadway uh, Initiative and a number of other trade uh, organisations. And uh, this website, Zero Carbon Business, is, is part of the, the culmination of that. And uh, it's, it's not still a sort of under development, so more will come through there. But the webinar that I've noted here uh, on the 23rd of April uh, will provide some more research findings and, and recommendations that specifically uh, for the SMEs. And one of the, the key things uh, that with uh, this Zero Carbon Business webpage is that it then link, very much links in uh, to the UK government's uh, SME Climate Hub, which is something that, that Andrew is promoting. And that's it for me. So um, I, I think it's Ian's observations next. So um, over to you, Ian. I don't have much to say this week because I think much of it has been covered in the in the contributions we've had so far i i would just on northern ireland i would simply add that that luke and i took part in a call yesterday with ministers the northern ireland secretary and with lord frost and uh i think i think we i think what luke said is is right that the the feeling is that there is a somewhat palpable improvement in the tone of the conversations but there is relatively little actual progress so far and it's not entirely clear where that progress will come uh, i think it does require the northern ireland um, situation to calm on the ground and i think it also probably requires uh, a degree of cooperation perhaps is the best way of looking at it between the UK government and the Republic of Ireland government to go to the Commission and to the Council in the EU and basically explain that unless the, the, the way in which we go forward is seen as being practical and unless the change unless the way in which the Commission interprets the protocol is is based on what will actually happen rather than the the fear of what might happen. So a risk-based approach, what is the real risk of goods leaking into the single market? How serious is that risk and how material is it to undermining the market itself? Unless the EU is prepared to accept that kind of approach, uh, which will be a bit of a departure for it over recent years, then it is going to be very difficult to solve some of these issues. On the other hand, if we can solve these issues, that gives you the key to two different uh, locks. The first is the one that, that makes the Northern Ireland um, protocol work and also incidentally makes Northern Ireland an extraordinarily attractive place to do business, particularly as food manufacturers, because you can turn right if, you, if, if that situation is unlocked, you'll be able to base your business there and then turn right for uh, the EU and turn left for the UK, and you'll be in the only you'll be the only in the only territory in the world that offers that opportunity. Uh, the second is that it might unlock the whole of the UK EU difficulties that we see at the moment, because the difficulties that consumers and shoppers are seeing made manifest in Northern Ireland, and those which uh, manufacturers and retailers are facing in getting their products into Northern Ireland are exactly the same as the difficulties the UK exporters are facing getting into the EU. And if you could find a way of getting a practical solution in Northern Ireland, you'd probably have at least a template for a solution in the rest of, to the rest of the problems in the EU. 
Um, I just turned rather handbrake-like to uh, make one observation uh, on COVID. So it's been a great couple of weeks in terms of opening up hospitality, but I don't want anybody to go away with the idea that this is problem solved. Uh, my good friend and colleague, Kate Nichols, who runs UK Hospitality, was, make, was uh, talking to us earlier today. And she made the point that only 40% of hospitality outlets have outside facilities, and only a quarter of them have opened up. So only 10% of hospitality outlets are actually open. And it's quite easy if you're in a relatively well-heeled suburban district or in a rural location or actually in the centre of big cities, particularly the centre of London, to be beguiled into thinking that things are on their way very fast back to normal. So as I sat last night in a restaurant in Covent Garden outside with a very, very nice eater, uh, on my own eating, uh, eating my dinner, uh, I felt that the world was a better place. But, and I think this is really important, 90% of pubs aren't open, and that means for our members that 90% of the customer base that they serve in hospitality and out of home is not available at this moment. And there's no guarantee that it's going to open up on the 17th of May, or that when it does open up through the summer, it will come back anything like at the rate it has previously come, uh, that it previously was, even trading last summer. Uh, and the other question is, even if it is trading, how does it pay? Because no business that starts uh, operations in the next few weeks will necessarily have the financial capacity to deliver its results, to deliver uh, payment to its suppliers uh, speedily or necessarily guaranteed. And I think it's really important that we continue to press for further work from the government on credit insurance and on a practical solution to hospitality being able to implement vaccine and vaccine immunity and uh, testing passports. Because if, as at the moment, it appears to be the case that those passport, I think there's a, di a difference of opinion in government, which is currently not reflected in the way in which those passports are being, being promoted. So, or indeed in the way in which the Cabinet Office review of them is, is, is being undertaken. So my view of the vaccine immunity and um, testing certification is that it should be based on one vaccination, on a recent lateral flow test wherever it is taken, or on antibody proof of antibodies. At the moment, the Cabinet Office appears to be saying that you have to have two jabs and that only a test undertaken out of home will be valid. Well, that isn't good enough. Uh, that won't work because the majority of tests, once the government agreed that testing at home was allowed, the majority of tests will be taken at home. And they're going to have to be prepared to allow those tests to stand for vaccine certificates or they or, or uh, COVID certificates, or they simply won't work. And if the certification doesn't work, hospitality will not be able to open. It's my view, not Kate's. My view, hospitality and out of home and big event spaces won't open up in the way that the government wants in the summer. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. 
FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.